This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You are the leader in the courtroom, and you want the jury to be looking to you for the answers. When you figure out your theory, never deviate. You want the facts to be consistent, complete, incredible. The defense has no problem running out the clock. Delay is the friend of the defense. It's tough to grow a firm by trying to hold on and micromanage. You've got to front load a simple structure for jurors to be able to hold on to. What types of creative things can we do as lawyers, even though we don't have a trial setting? Whatever you've got to do to make it real, you've got to do to make it real. But the person who needs convincing is you. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation. Your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, we are joined by a fantastic trial lawyer and a good friend, Ed Cerimboli out of Philly. How are you doing, Ed? I'm good, Michael. Thank you very much. And congratulations on your recent success. That was a outstanding, outstanding verdict that you guys had in Texas. Uh, Great, great, great work. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Before we get started, as always, I want to thank our sponsor, Law Pods. You've seen the good work they've done. They've got, we're here recording live at the Academy of Truck Accident Attorneys Symposium in Atlanta. They've set up the lighting. They've got all this cool audio. All we have to do is talk. He goes back and mixes it, gets rid of the background noise, makes the clips to market it so people can actually watch and listen to to this thing. Law Pods makes my life so easy. If you want to do your own podcast, which I recommend, it's fun to do. It's a good way to get your name out there. I highly recommend Law Pods. Those guys are great. You know, I have a face for radio and they <laughs> me even look good, look good sometimes. So. Wow, that's hard to do. <laughs> it is. It is. I'm playing, my friend. Yeah. So we were going to talk about, you're one of the lawyers that actually tries cases. Yes. I think we were talking before you've tried over 60 cases so far. I, I think it's probably closer to about 100 since oh, awesome. the beginning of my you know career and it's interesting. I know you try a lot of cases. So that either means that you and I are very bad at settling cases. Are and, selecting them. <laughs> right. Or select it. Or either, either we're bad at selecting cases or bad at settling cases. One of the, you know, one of the two. But many years ago, one of my, um, one of my mentors, a guy named Paul Scopter, Paul said to me, he said, listen, I've never seen somebody as bad at settling cases as you are. You're terrible. He said, you, you better get good at, you know, trying <laughs> cases because, uh, you really are just terrible at mediations. And <laughs> so, yes, I've, uh, I've, and I enjoy it as you do. I enjoy, enjoy the process of being in the courtroom, the, you know, workup of the case and uh, certainly the theater of being in a, you know, in a courtroom in a live trial. I think trying the, especially early in your career when you're building your skill set. I think trying the crappy case, I, I think it's important for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, we get the repetition. So we're in yeah. there, we're getting the skills. So you have the comfort level when you go into the, into the bigger one. And I had a second reason. <laughs> well, I could tell you, I remember, do you remember your first trial? I do remember my first trial. Yeah. I remember my, my first trial. I represented a fraternity brother that had slipped and fallen in the shower of the, of the fraternity the day that they were leaving for spring, you know, for spring break. It was a you know, new construction in this shower. And I remember getting handed the file and thinking to myself, this is terrible. This is an absolutely terrible case. And then when I dug into it, I learned that the contractor had actually used wall tile on the floor and it was super slippery. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it ended up, uh, you know, we were successful in it. But I remember walking in to pick that jury and the judge saying to me, you're seriously going to try a fraternity brother, a drunk fraternity brother slipping and falling 
in the fraternity shower the days leaving for spring break. I said, yeah, it doesn't sound that good on paper, but I'm telling you, Judge, <laughs> it's going to go go well. So what was your first trial? Well, I guess my first one without a jury was one of our referring lawyers at the firm I went to work for as a baby lawyer. Mm-hmm. His aunt was buried in the family plot at what they believed to be a community cemetery. There was someone that had retired from the Border Patrol, found some old deed and say, no, this is, there's a cemetery corporation for one of my ancestors, and this cemetery is for the heirs, friends, and servants of Don so-and-so. Your aunt was not a, an heir, a friend, or a servant, and so you need to dig her up and put her in the pauper cemetery across the street. Oh, my God. And so it was really a trial over whether the, he could prove that whatever this weird cemetery corporation sure. from 100 years ago that we couldn't even find evidence existed. But there was a deed. I mean, uh, right. whether or not he had the right to tell her to get out of, dig up your body and go somewhere else across the street. She's still there. We won the trial. That's good. Cool. <laughs> and it was a really important lesson because I had like four arguments that I had. Right. And the judge at the end got up and said, well, you're wrong. All four of your arguments are wrong. But tell the other side, but you're wrong too because this is what, these are the elements you have to prove A, B, C, D. You didn't prove C or D. Therefore, she stays there. And so I just learned, you know, take the win anyway you get it. You don't have to be right. You know, just take it. Absolutely. But my next three were jury trials. They were personal injury cases, and they were defense verdicts. And I remember a little disheartening. I'm going to tell you something. It's not a defense verdict. You came in second. I came in second. (laughs) That's all. You just came in second. And because I remember, you know, I'm a long young lawyer trying to get a real name with baby associate somewhere. And, you know, some people started talking crap and talking smack. Like, yeah, he's lost three in a row. This guy's no good. And then the fourth one is uh, not a huge case by our standards today, but we had 3000 something dollars in chiropractic bills, a girl that seemed just fine afterwards, sure. minor collision, and we got $76,000. That's awesome. Uh, That's great. And, yeah. uh, you know, that changed everything because nobody else was getting $76,000 sure. in those cases. Sure. And so then, and then you just, you know, tried a bunch of tough cases and sometimes yeah. we got the red ribbon and sometimes we got an okay verdict, but like every third case we would get a verdict exceeding the policy limits on a case where they're offering... 3000 5000 sure. bucks, and got a name for myself, and more importantly, just got comfortable in the courtroom, just yeah. trying, you know, back then I was doing 10 to 15 a year. Sometimes we would even, like, pick two juries, on, like, pick one jury in the morning, pick one, a different jury in the afternoon on Monday, try the first case starting Tuesday, try that one Tuesday, Wednesday, get a verdict, and then come back Thursday, Friday, get a verdict. Yeah. You know, when you won both of them, it was awesome. Then I had a day where it just, I had a criminal, I did a criminal trial and a civil trial the same week, so I picked two juries on, on Monday. Then we came back and we tried most of the criminal trial, but the judge says, we'll come back at the end of the week. We'll do the closing because I got some other stuff to do. Right. So I did, then did the civil trial and I got like a low, ver- like medical bills only verdict in the morning. And then I got a guilty on my client uh-huh. in the afternoon. Like, I think I'm the only person I know that's like got their butt kicked in trial <laughs> twice, two different juries, same day. <laughs> Listen, I've, I've had some stinging losses. I can't even say that I've ever experienced anything, you know, along those lines. Well, my, my client was on the roof. You know, he, we tried self-defense and people had threatened him and he, right. he really did have a reason to be, he was a juvenile, he really did have a reason to be scared. But instead of calling the cops, he dressed all in black, got on the roof, waited for them and yelled, die motherfucker, die and opened fire with a shotgun. Not a good idea. Thank God the gun jammed and he didn't kill anybody. Right. And, uh, and look, they've all, they're all doing okay now. Yeah, the kids, uh, they've gotten past that, they're adults and. I've I've heard actually from his girlfriend, uh, actually hired me on a case. He's doing a lot better now. Good. So it makes me happy. But yes, those trials, I didn't make money on them. Even the ones that I won, I didn't make that much money. But I got a bunch of trials. And now when, and I think the same for you, when we're in the courtroom on something substantial, we're not worried about how do you authenticate an exhibit? How do you ask the question? Where do I stand? How do I move my body? I mean, you you get like a 
you get more natural. It is the, for me walking to the courtroom now is just it's such a rush. I I love it. I love being in the courtroom because I you know I have that body of work and right. and they didn't all go perfectly and and you know witnesses faltered or or you know things didn't come come together as we thought they would. But you know now it's helped with preparation for sure for you know for trial. And now when we walk into you know try a case, you know it's pretty airtight and we have a good process and. It's ever evolving. I mean, obviously, you know, we're trying cases differently now than even, you know, two years ago or three years ago. And I, that's what I love. It's just the, that it's, I really do think it's an art. Yeah. And like yourself, I know you're always pushing the envelope, trying new things and some of them work, some of them don't. But I think that that's what, um, you know, really uh, sets people like yourself apart from lawyers who say they try cases or lawyers that do try cases, but they always say, well, this, you know, I've been doing it this way for 25 years. Right. Well, if you're doing it that way for 25 years, you've probably been doing it wrong on some capacity for 24 of those 25 because you're not learning and evolving. Are things so like I learned, like I had like a kind of a system for trying car wreck cases that worked for from like 98 to like 03 was working really well. Sure. And then it stopped working. Like the jur- something changed culturally with the jurors yeah. in the community where I was trying them. And I had to like say, well, I don't like the way these verdicts are training. I need to do something different. I need to go learn something yeah. different, try something different. I want to ask you something before we get, we had something where we were going to talk yeah. about in this podcast, <laughs> yeah, but, and, and, uh, which is going to be, you know, lessons we learned trying cases in COVID and then how you've done that to improve the way you're trying cases post COVID. But I want to, before we go that, I want to talk about a mindset thing and, and the, you know, you've tried a lot of cases, you've had some incredible results and you've had some results that probably aren't going on your website. Uh, <laughs> yes. So, I think one thing that happens to people is they don't try cases because they have such a fear of not doing great. They have such a fear of, of losing or getting second place, however you want to put it, or, you know, that looking bad, stumbling. How do you get past that so you can go in there and enjoy it? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I would say that 10 years ago probably would have been a far different answer. And 10 years ago, I would have said, I don't get over it. You know, I'm, right. I'm ruminating over it. And these things are, you know, I'm really... They're front and center in my mind. And, you know, now I meditate a lot. Uh, my wife owns a mindfulness company. So oh, wow. that's, yeah, so that's been, you know, that's been a, a big part of that journey. Like just getting, you know, getting to a point that, A, you're comfortable with yourself and, and realizing that, look, there are things that are in your control and things that are not. And for me, it was getting to that point that I'm going to work as hard as I can. I'm going to prepare as hard as I can. I'm going to go in there and do the absolute best that I can. But at the end of the day, eight or 12 or 10 people are going to make a decision. And it could be on something that is completely unrelated to anything I did in the courtroom. Yeah. Right. And so I can't control that. And I think once I got to that point where I had to feel comfortable in what I was doing and whatever the result was, was the result. Yeah. And that was it. And, and so now I look back on cases that, that I've, we've won and lost over the last couple of years and I look at the process and I said, did we do that right? Yep. Did we go in there? And if I could say, yes, we did, whatever the result is, is the result. So yeah. It's not that we don't learn from, okay, well, this didn't go well. I would like to do it. Like if I had tried over again, would I do it differently? Well, hell yeah, I didn't win. Right. <laughs> of course, I, why would I do the same right. thing over again right. the same right. way? Right. But 
but not letting it destroy you. Because I see some people like, well, this jury didn't like my tie, so I'm never going to wear a green tie. Oh, and I'm never going to never do this and never do that. And jurors don't know. They don't know why. None of us really most of the time know why we decide things. We have an emotional decision and then we come up with a rationalization yeah. for it. So we can drive ourselves nuts talking to the jurors. Afterwards. Oh, there's no, well, and it's funny when you say talking to the jurors. So there was a, a judge in Philadelphia, Judge Jackson, and uh, she's she retired a couple years ago. But I remember I tried a case. It did really well, really had a great result. And I said, you know, do you mind if I talk to the jurors? And she said, don't talk to the jurors afterwards. And I said, why not? She said, because if they tell you that they just decided this case because they liked your tie or they, some reason she said, you're going to have an obligation to come in and tell me, you know, judge, they didn't follow the, follow the law. She said, you can't control how they arrived at this decision. You can control what you did in the courtroom. You can control the evidence that you put in for the case. She said, but at the end of the day, she's like, don't talk to them after you lose and don't talk to them after you win. And I think it's a, I think it's a very instructive piece of advice because it could drive you nuts. It, can, and, and it could drive you crazy. I hear a lot of really smart people that say we should talk to them or hire someone to interview them. I used to. It just, it drives me nuts. And I just, we had a case and I think, I still think we made the right decision. Selling. We tried it for a week at the end of the week. We, you know, before the trial, they said they would never pay a million dollars. And right before the trial, we opened a million dollars on table, but it's gone in 24 hours. And we tried it for a week and we got an offer that was a multiple of that. Right. And, you know, the client was happy. I was happy. Thought it was a great settlement. And then, and we had tried a week of our case, but we hadn't tried, like a plaintiff hadn't gone on yet, which could have right. really turned against us because, you know, we'd made a, it's a brain injury case and the plaintiff looks kind of normal. And so then we went and talked to the jurors afterwards and the defense lawyer asked me, well, how much were y'all thinking about awarding? And all but one of them were between 10 and $15 million, which is way more than yeah. what we settled yeah. for now. But that doesn't mean that's where they would have been after my client testified, after the defense, but, but it was like, so the next time that Mallory and I tried a case, and again, we, we settled it actually I don't know how this ever happened. We, we somehow settled it for a million dollars more than our demand the Friday before trial, like on Thursday. I mean, just everything went perfect yeah. in trial. It doesn't, yeah. Sometimes you go to trial, you get your ass kicked. Sometimes like this, everything is working out. Everyone's freaking out. You catch and, lightning in a bottle, for and, sure. And, and it was happening, and they saw it, and, and the excess people freaked out, and, yeah. and it got done. And so we were talking to the jurors afterwards. They wanted to talk to us. And then the, the defense lawyer was about to ask. I said, I'm going to leave the room if you ask. I just told the jurors, like, don't tell me. Yeah. I said, this is what happened to me last time. <laughs> If you all were going to give a lot more than what I just settled for, I don't want to feel bad about it. Yeah. So just, like, I want to talk to you about what you thought about the client, what you thought right. about how we put things on. And then I learned, like, they, they hated watching video depots. Like, they said it was, like, painful. They said they, they paid attention, but it was so hard. Yeah. In that case, we had to do a lot of video because our client was an oil field worker and all the witnesses right. were all over the country. And, right. But uh, you can learn a lot. But I also met lawyers that just drive themselves crazy because they're making changes based on the rationalizations for the – not the reason. And there is no rational that basis. It's I mean, that, that it's, a, it's a very emotional thing, especially, especially in a jury trial. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you get eight or 10, 12 people in a room together, and they're all going to have viewed that particular witness, piece of evidence differently. And now there's going to be, you know, horse trading on you know, numbers and everything else. So you never, yeah. you just, you just don't, you just don't, you know, know. So I, I've kind of given into, look, I'm, I can control the process. I can yeah. control what we do, I can control the fact that we're going to focus group things and do data surveys and everything else, try to figure it all out. But at the end of the day, we may just not get it right or we may get it right and not know why we got it right. Yeah. So. 
So for our listeners that are struggling with this, like they want to try more cases, but they just, they have that stress, they have that fear. What are some things that you would recommend for trying to get to improve the mindset of, of letting go of the, of the outcome and focusing on what you can control? Yeah, I think one thing, and everybody has to do whatever makes them feel comfortable in terms of, like for me, it's certainly exercising. I know you're a big runner and I think you have to feel good physically first and then get yourself in a good headspace, whether it's meditation or yoga or whatever it is, because things that are going to let you develop skills so that you don't have to focus on the results all the time. You're focusing more on the process and especially, you know, doing a lot of meditation and Michael Leiserman, uh, you know, and I talk about it just because he, he's a big meditator and it's, it's something that has helped calm my mind so that I'm not always a, oh my God, I got to worry about this and this and this and this and this. And, and so I think that my best advice to people would be take care of yourself first. Yep. And, and if you take care of yourself first and you get yourself in both a good, good headspace and good physical headspace, the losses, you, you're going to learn to deal with them a little bit, I, I think a little bit better from a stress stand, you know, standpoint. Because this is, a, I mean, it's a tremendously stressful job. So, you know, certainly would, would encourage more people to do, you know, do things like that. I totally agree. And I think just getting back in there and trying another one, forcing oh, yourself. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I tried one in, you know, July to August, had a mediocre result, was pissed off about it. And then had to go try another case and yep. had a great result. And, yeah. and I was not any better of a lawyer in the second trial or any worse of a lawyer in the first trial. It's just they had different facts, different juries. And, you know, if, if I had let the first one get me down and then I chickened out and, and wouldn't try the second one. Right. Or, or you would have taken probably a mediocre offer because you were a little gun shy. Right. And, and, and that's one of the things that... Oh, they didn't give me that option. On the <laughs> no, I know. Yeah. <laughs> that, there was yeah. not, that, I didn't even have a mediocre... I would have taken a mediocre offer. <laughs> you and I have talked about... We've tried a lot of zero offer cases. Yeah, that was a uh, you know, $50,000 offer and an yeah. amputation where the workers' comp would have gotten all of it. it, it yeah. Zero in the client's pocket. No, yeah. that, that was easy. <laughs> was I, easy. I, 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 can't, I can't claim bravery there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no doubt about it. Okay, well, let's talk about, you know, so trying cases during COVID. You actually tried cases when everything was shut down. I did. I tried, um, I tried three cases during COVID, and it was, it, I know you had tried one, and you and I had actually talked about when you were getting ready for trial, and I think, you know, we had kind of have a very similar experience. Like what was taken away from us during COVID was our freedom of movement, even right. in the courtroom. You know, judges made you stand at a podium, and you had to wear a mask and everything else. And so we, you know, we really worked very, very, very hard at creating this medium that allowed the jury to still have an experience in the courtroom, but not have the same experience. Because, you know, when we tried the cases, the jurors were spread out all over the gallery. They weren't connected. They, you know, so it was a very, you know, witnesses were in the jury box instead of on the witness stand. So we really had to work hard to create some type of atmosphere where, even though I wasn't able to have a big board and point on the board or have the witness get off the stand and explain something to somebody. So, I, you know, we used a lot of visuals, TV monitors, PowerPoint, you know, a lot of graphics. Um, and one of the things that we really worked hard on was shortening the trial. Okay. And because I think that people didn't want to just sit through that whole environment they wanted to get the information that they needed to make a decision on the case. 
do it quickly, but it had to leave an impression. And so one of the things that we really started to, to work on was that our, our questions had a corresponding visual component in the courtroom. Tell me, can you explain that? Yes. So, you know, what we would do is we started to use a lot of um, yes-no matrix charts. What's a yes-no matrix so chart? For, I'll give you an, an example. For, you know, in a trucking case where you have certain criteria that obviously uh, the, the, the company needs to follow to hire a safe driver. So normally, pre-COVID, you know, you would have your expert going up there and saying there has to be an application for employment. And then you'd show the application or, or lack thereof. Drug tests, road tests, orienta- you know, driver orientation, the inquiries to previous employers, all these steps. We couldn't do that during COVID because you wouldn't be able to walk up and here's the file, show the jury what's not. So what we started to do was take all this information and condense it down into one slide that now, you know, our expert or, or the witness, you know, the safety director for the company or whomever it is, if you're on cross, you're just able to go through and now start asking, all right, is there an application for employment? No. Is there a drug test? No. And so now there was the question had a corresponding visual image right. that now left an indelible impression in the jury. Like, oh, there is no application for employment. They didn't do inquiries. And rather than having all the documents, we have all the documents, but now rather than going through, I don't want to say the dog and pony show, but it was a dog and pony show. Of, now like, it's quick hitting items and then these visual summaries of large volumes of information, it's become invaluable for, you know, for us. And we use them in depositions now, even moving forward. Yeah, you've been kind enough to share some of the stuff yeah. you've done on some depositions where it's just beautiful. I mean. I, it, you know, we work hard on it. We have a great in-house tech guy. Uh, his name's Chris Spence, and he's a, he is part of every case from day one. And he does all of our, you know, he does all of our, you know, PowerPoint graphics in-house and, We've tested them too. That's the other thing. You know, it's, we didn't just kind of come up with, oh, let's do this. And we started testing these with data surveys and jury and, and focus groups and people, they loved it. It was instead of having 20 minutes of a, of a cross, it's four minutes of a cross, you know, cross. Yeah. I think the other thing is that, you know, you ask all the questions 20 minutes later, they don't remember the first things you asked right. about. You made these great points, but if they don't remember them, whereas when you have it in writing, even if they were like kind of zoning, because some juror is going to be zoning out at any given part of trial. No we're doubt. human. I mean, no I, doubt. I, yep. we're going to be in a watching lectures today from very great speakers. And there will be points in time where mm-hmm. we're going to be thinking about something else or it's just because we're human beings. Yeah. But then they can go back to it. Yep. And, and it stays there and it reminds them. And they see it. Yeah. And, and I think that that was one of the biggest takeaways that we got from COVID was, look, let them see more things. Not, and when I say see more things, not just documents. Yeah. Because, you know, cause they could be boring as hell, right? But let them see more things that we've created that move the needle and tell this, you know, in our favor and tell the story in the way that, you know, we want it. You know, we just did it with expert uh, depths, uh, you know, past couple of weeks. Like, yeah. You know, where this particular expert is, you know, he has an opinion and his opinion is, well, you shouldn't check the safety scores before you hire a motor carrier. And there's 11 industry sources on the other side that say you should. And so now we created a visual where 
on the left-hand side, it's these sources. On the right-hand side, it's just this guy. So now, yeah. now it, when you look at it, you're like, this guy kind of looks like he's full of shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us by calling 210-941-1301 to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. And now, back to the show. So what's your advice to people they want to start, if someone wants to start and figuring out how can I incorporate more visuals or more graphics into my practice? Because I think it's not just for the trials, it's for the, the depositions. Absolutely. I think one of the things that encourage everybody to do is that when you're sitting down to prepare for your deposition, if there is a category of information, look at that category of information and can you now translate that into some visual image, whether it's a yes, no chart, whether it's a timeline, it could be a graph, a pie chart, whatever it may be. Can you take all that and can you create some type of image for all of that information? Um, I'm a firm believer that the answer to that is usually yes, 100% of the time. I, there's not many cases where we're like, well, geez, you, you, there's no image. There's right. no image for this. There is, but you have to, you know, you got to look at it. And so I think we get into a habit where we're just asking questions. Yeah. And, and I think one of the things that I would tell people is start, when you look at your depositions, think about trial. Yeah. And, and think about how am I going to create something that I'm going to be able to use moving forward, putting it in summary judgment motions. That's one of the things that we've been visuals that we're creating. Now we're filing proactive summary judgment motions, putting those visuals in there helps educate the court as well. And now the other thing is when the judge sees that this in a summary judgment motion, he or she is far more inclined to now have no problem with it you know, in trial. Exactly. Because these, these, that was one of the, I certainly think that that was one of the big pushes on the defense bar, why they wanted to change the federal rule on, on, on visuals because they, it is effective and that's how people learn. And and I think they wanted to go back to the dark ages where they don't want people to see anything. They don't want people to look at anything. And we forget, you know, in law school with so much reading and, and, and listening to lectures and we learn to learn that way, but most people don't. I mean, the, and even lawyers, not, not, not there's some very visual. Like, I'm not a visual person naturally. Like, mm-hmm. I take notes and it's yeah. there and that's how I make decisions. But I found that it's not my job to learn the case. It's my job to teach the case. Right, absolutely. And I need to. Well, you did something right. brilliant, though. When you had that model, I remember you were working on in during, it. Yeah. It might have been the case during COVID. Man, I thought that was just genius. Well, it wasn't supposed genius. to. Genius. I got, yeah, we, we were trying to show... It was a case where someone ran a stop sign, but it wasn't just a stop sign. There was a stop ahead sign, yeah. there was an intersection ahead sign, and a, and a junction sign. Mm-hmm. And the driver, and it was over half a mile of signs, and the driver said he blew through all of them. So we wanted to create a visual. And at the time, we, we didn't know about COVID. We, right. we were preparing to drive right. the case. So like, I wanted to show that this driver had many opportunities, had, clearly had to be distracted. We said he was playing with his phone. Yeah. And so we built like a 12 foot long scale model of the scene. It was awesome. And then, you know, had to scale, you know, little 3D printed cars to run on there. And then, of course, then we had to figure out COVID happened. How can we use that? So we had to really work with the 
video people to practice and practice. Like, how do we, we it's awesome. And it's, it's almost like, it almost looked like an animation because yeah. we would pan through there. But I had to hire a professional camera crew. Yep. But the case was worth it. And then, you know, follow the car along and you can see the little signs. And, yeah. But it really, uh, it really does present that visual. I'm, I'm really big about now, I'm trying to move from just the graphics to things that you can touch and hold, 3D printing. 3D printing's gotten so cheap. Oh my gosh, it's fantastic. Moving in the right direction, because we're doing the same. If somebody can see it, if they could touch it, if they could feel it, they're far more likely to remember and, and have that, that imprinted in, in their memory, whatever it is. And so we're always like, all right, we got, we're going to use PowerPoints. We're going to use our bodies as a visual as well. Yeah. Models, especially on damages. If people can see, you know, the see and touch like where the broken bone is or, yeah. and the rods and the pins, man, it, it leaves such an impression on, you know, on them as opposed to maybe a, just a static image yeah. on, a, on a screen. We use a lot. I know, you know, we've talked about this before, like we've used animations, but you got to be careful with the animations because sometimes they may show something. You may see something that that when the, you show it to a focus group, they're like, they're looking at it in a completely different way. So you got to be very careful with the animations. But you know, yeah, I mean, just giving you know giving the jurors a kind of a visual experience in the courtroom, I think helps us tell the story and also tell the story in the sequence and manner that we that we want it that hopefully will be successful so now that we've come out, pretty much come out of COVID, at least most of the country uh hopefully has come out of COVID. yeah uh and we're actually you know the jurors are in the jury box together you can move around the courtroom you don't have a mask on how are you how have you incorporated what you learned in trying cases in the weird COVID environment to trying cases now where we're kind of closer to back to normal yeah i think pre-covid i would never really contemplate or did or did it very infrequently, having um, uh, witnesses zoom in. Yeah. Now it's commonplace. I mean, it, I actually think that jurors, it is the expectation if the witness can't be in the courtroom that they're going to be, just be zoomed in. And I think they get annoyed if, they're just a, if it's just a static video because the technology is so good and they're so used to seeing it. Whether it was, you know, on television, you know, every talk show, they're zooming people in. Yeah. So I think that's one of the things that now, especially with our experts, we're like, look, <clears throat> we don't want to put you on video. If you can't come live for whatever reason, we're going to zoom you in at a particular time. And, and I think that's one of the things that has made our presentations a heck of a lot better, especially, you know, expert wise. And one of the things that it has forced us to do is when, some, when you're going to zoom somebody into the courtroom, you know what you're not going to do? Have them testify for three hours or right. whatever. It's, it, I mean, it is short. It is hitting. It's very focused. And then especially even with the Zoom, we've been able to incorporate visual images. So now you see, you know, the witnesses zoomed in, but, you know, there's still a big screen in the courtroom that's showing the visual images. So yeah, that's one of the things that we've done and, and incorporated. And then now, from some of the lessons that we've learned during COVID and just jurors' attention spans, what they want to see, our trials are so much shorter. I mean, they really are. I mean, we, you know, we work really hard at getting them down to giving them the information that they need to make the decision in our favor and nothing more. Yep. And trying not to waste, you know, waste their time, you know, at all. And then finally, the, the other thing that I would say we've kind of taken from COVID and, and, now, 
are really hyper-focused on in our cases is the sequencing of the case. Okay, and tell me about that. Yeah, so, you know, i just give you, a, give you an example case that we tried, you know, tried last year. Normally, I would say, okay, well, we're going to put on, you know, it was a trucking case, and I would say, all right, we're going to put on the safety director, whomever it is, or we're going to play the safety director's deposition clips. And so now what we've done is instead of doing that, we have, as our first witness, whomever that person is going to be that's going to tell the story from the opening. Yeah. So now I've opened, I've told the story in exactly how I want it. And so now I want my first witness to mimic what I've said in the opening. And so now whomever that witness is utilizing all of these tools, the deposition video clips, whatever visual images, images we have, putting it into that frame and that sequence so that, because that's when the jurors are going to be most attentive. Right. That first witness. And if you just put up a first witness and it's just a talking head, you've lost that critical opportunity to really now engage them and move the ball and, your, you know, move the needle towards a, towards a victory. So the sequencing is something we, we work really hard, really, really, really hard on figuring out, uh, you know, first witness, second witness, you know, just like last witness, last witness. Yeah. First witness, you know, and then the other, <laughs> it's going to sound crazy, but the witness after lunch, because that's juries are they're a jur- just like we are, you know, yeah. we're, we're most focused when we get to work in the morning and then you give it back from lunch and, you know, that's the witness that everybody is now is going to be paying attention to. Not necessarily the witness at four o'clock in the afternoon when everybody's ready to doze off. And sometimes when you have, let's say, the defense took a video of a witness that's not going to be so great for you. Maybe put them on at 3.34 in the exactly. afternoon by video. Exactly. Maybe make that video a little longer yeah. before they yeah, get yeah, to yeah. the bad point. Yeah. People want to sleep by the time they get to it. <laughs> Every time somebody, I know, I totally agree. You know, they always say, hey, can we, do you mind if we take this witness out of order, put this video in? I'm like, yeah, no problem. Let's put them on at 3.30 or 4 o'clock. Yeah. And inevitably, you look over the jurors and like, not an off for that. So, yeah. But those are some of the... I would say some of the key takeaways that, that we have, you know, learned, learned during COVID and now, um, you know, making our, I think making our trials, um, a lot more streamlined and, and the presentation of the evidence a lot more efficient. Yeah. And one lesson I've learned on that just is it's not that you're trying to do, I know I was, I talked a lot to Joe Fried about this. He used to use the term speed trial and he stopped that because you get this, like, you got to rush through it. You still have to take your time and give the information in, in small enough bites that the jury can get it, give right. them time to absorb the material, to understand it. It's just you're not spending time on a bunch of extraneous stuff. No, no question. I played basketball in high school and college, and John Wooden, you know, my college coach was a big, huge John Wooden guy, and he would say, move quickly but not in a hurry. Right. And that was, you know, something that left a really uh, an impression on me, especially in our practice, like, if you're moving quickly, you're moving efficiently. But if you're in a hurry, especially in a courtroom, you're just rushed. Right. And I think that's, you know, I, I believe me, I'm a firm believer in what Joe's trying to do and, and doing it in a more efficient manner. But I think you're right, like, you know, not speeding. You're not right. speeding. You're just doing it more efficiently. But you're also learning to, like, not make every possible argument. Right. Sometimes the, if the defense says something really stupid, just 
let it stay there. Trust the jury that they're going to understand that's stupid. It's just stupid. <laughs> you don't have to like, you don't have to cross-examine. Like if you've got 10 things you can cross-examine the defense expert on, just do your top three. That's strong. You don't need to do seven, eight, and nine. No, half the time we're doing it for ourselves rather than, you know, rather from the, than the jury. Or we don't trust that our best, three best are good enough. And so we got to put our other seven arguments because, well, what if, the, what if the other three didn't work? Right. Right. No, no question about it. I, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, it's giving them, imagine if you were in the jury box, would you want to hear all that? And the answer is no. One of the really fascinating things that we did was I made all of my lawyers sit through, be like focus groups jurors yeah. for, a tr- for a case. And then they saw firsthand, they're like, oh my God, this is dreadfully boring. Like we need to, we need to shorten this, clip that. We need a visual image here. And they start to see it, especially if you um, watch a video depth that you've taken of like a doctor and you just, it's the doctor and then two lawyers just talking. You, you're like, I, I may jump out of the window here in the courtroom because this is, I can't take it anymore. I just yep. can't take it anymore. So, you know, this, so those are some of the, um, some of the things that we've really been trying to, trying to work on, you know, moving forward, learning, learning from COVID. Well, it's so good that we've been able to get something good out of some things that was yeah. so horrible. A couple one thing, I'm just curious. Yeah. And if you can edit it out, if, yeah. if, if, if uh, you don't like the question. So when you're picking a jury now, do you ever have people that still show up with a mask on? I do. What I do, you, do. What do you think about those people? Uh, so that's a great question, Michael, because, you know, I'm trying cases pretty much all over Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania is a really interesting state because, you know, as James Carville once said, you got Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and like Alabama in the middle, right? So we have, we have very, very, very liberal pockets. I mean, Philadelphia, you know, I, I can't remember the cases that we've, picked in the last post-COVID, I don't think anybody shows up with a mask on, right? Same with Pittsburgh, uh, you know, out in Allegheny County, although there are some, you know, pockets of Allegheny that are, that are different. But, you know, you go pick a, a jury in like Carbon County, which is, you know, 98% uh, Republican and very, very, very conservative. Nobody's wearing a mask. But if somebody comes in with a mask, now all of a sudden, what's going on here, yeah. right? And so it's, it's a really interesting, you see, you see those people turn on that person, right? Yeah. And you know that, okay, this is going to be like in counties like that, you see the very, very, very clear line. But, you know, like I said, Philly, I, there's a few people maybe that, that still, you know, wear a mask, but it's predominantly, you know, not worried about, but in some of these other small rural counties, it is an issue because you know that that particular person for whatever reason, still has this belief that they need to wear this mask inside in order to protect themselves from, you know, from, you know, from COVID. So, yeah, I, I yeah. struggle with it because first of all, I have my own personal prejudice, which is like, why the I know, are you wearing a mask I know, now? I know. And, you know, we've all had it by now. Come on, let's yeah. get on. Uh, you know, not forgetting that different people have different, sure. you know, physical conditions, people at home. But, you know, my instinctive like, man, that it makes me think of like the image I saw on Twitter the other day. It's like, a guy is riding a motorcycle without a helmet and has a mask on outside. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, Come on. You know? Yeah. No, I know. Your, your risk assessment is not very good here, buddy. Not uh, at all. Now, you know, but part of that, well, you know, so someone that's really safety oriented, they're fearful, but are they going to be feeling like they're in danger the whole time? Are they going to be able to focus on the case and emote with someone else when they think I might die from being here next to all these people? Sure. And then just, like I said, the group dynamic. Jerry oh. is a group dynamic. If that person 
if that person is more likely to advocate for me because they're a safety person, is everyone else going to say, oh, they're, that's one of those mask wearing liberals? Yep. I, I'm, I'm automatically and instinctively going to go against anything that they say. It, is, it, a pol- it is so polarizing. You're 100% so right. I, I've been striking mask wearers. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I haven't said that publicly before, yeah. but uh, I'm just kind of curious as to what other people thought I, about I don't disagree at all because I do, I do think it's, a, you know, there's a few issues that are just in our culture right now that are so polarizing that it can totally distract everything that you're doing in the courtroom. And that's one of them. Yeah. Um, and I think that you're, you know, you're right to, to, to strike them. I, I, I have the same belief, you know, because I don't want, I want a neutral playing field and I don't want, if there's 11 people in the box and one person wearing a mask, then that one person is going to be, they're going to go, they're going to go into deliberations and that one person is going to be pushed to the side. Yeah. And if that person is very, on my side or on my client's side, these other 11 people are going to cannibalize that poor, you know, yep. that, that person and it's not going to go well. So I think now, you know, when I look back, I think I have also struck every person that has had a mask on in the last year and a half. Yeah, we had one surprise. She ended up being an alternate. She was, she didn't wear a mask for jury selection, but when the trial started, she started wearing one every day. Interesting. But That's she was an alternate and didn't make it on there anyway. It's very interesting. So, yeah. Last thing, just uh, you've talked a lot about graphics. Of course, this is almost like a radio show, a podcast. You can't see the graphics, right. but we do have a website. Do you have any you'd be wanting to share that we could put Absolutely. up on the trial yeah. website? You can go to the episode page, yeah. see some examples. Because, I mean, I've seen them. You've done yeah. some incredible stuff. I mean, I take them. I show them to them, like, look what he's doing. <laughs> we all need to do this, too. And yeah. I, I've got, like, Sonia and Mallory are so much better than I am at the graphics. But I have, I have people that are so brilliant at graphics already. Yeah. But every time we see something really good, like some stuff you did, like, Look, we can take this to another level. Look what he's doing. We could do that too. And I'd like, you know, the listeners to be able to go in there and, and, oh, absolutely. and see some of that. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll share a couple of, uh, you know, PowerPoint presentations that we've done on visual aids. And, uh, yeah, I'll shoot it to you and you can put it, put it right up on the website. Awesome. So it'll be on the episode page. So just uh, get there, trialornation.com, find the Ed Cerimboli episode, and we will have them there in the show notes. Michael, thank you so much for having me on. Oh, thank really you. Appreciate I really enjoyed it. seeing it. And I enjoy the, I'm glad we're going to be able to spend some time together here in Atlanta. Absolutely. Take care. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive plaintiff lawyer-only content and live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us by calling 210-941-1301 to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our host, guest, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.